It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNA Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb, Eric, and Sean. Listen in as they discuss the 1988 film, The Vanishing. Again, I think the last thing the three of us did was, was it multiple maniacs. Oh yeah, I almost forgot about that one. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, so here we are again with something completely different, but also released by the Criterion Collection. So there you go. Why did you choose The Vanishing, Caleb? I chose it because I was just thinking about movies that I haven't watched in a really long time that I remember being really good. Mm-hmm. And I first saw this film when Criterion released it. I think it was maybe like 2013, 2014, something like that. And I was just buying basically anything Criterion was releasing at the time. I was like, okay, this, they're putting this out. Sure, I'll grab it blind. And I loved it at the time, but it kind of disturbed me to the point that I just never uh, rewatched it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, it might be a good excuse to, to rewatch it. And I mentioned to Eric that you might like it because of some of the somewhat Columbo-ish ties in some minor mm-hmm. ways. Wait, that I would like it because of Columbo ties? Uh, Sean. Oh, okay. Because we were talking about covering it, just the two of us. Oh, okay. Yeah, and Sean, had you seen this before? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, yes and no. Uh, many years ago, I was watching TV, and the remake was on. And it's got uh, Donald... Not, uh, Kiefer. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, and uh, Jeff Bridges plays the killer. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. What's going on here? So I just saw the last 15 minutes of it. Wow. And that compl- that, that oh. kind of screwed up the viewing of this. But um, that doesn't mean that I didn't like it or anything like that. Uh, but if you, yeah, that's kind of like knowing who Kaiser Sose is before you watch The Usual Suspects. Because, you know, the, it gives that last scene um, a lot less impact. Um, but what's interesting is that I think the re- I think the remake just ends with spoilers. Uh, Keith or Sutherland in the coffin. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, that's how it ends. But um, I don't know if I should have said that. Hey, it's all good. I mean, I assume that people listening to this have watched it. So <laughs> I'm assuming five percent of people hearing this have watched it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's really well done. And it's good, and I'm not familiar with the director at all. I don't know what else he's done. I haven't done that research yet. Um, but I, my favorite thing about this movie is the performance and the character of Raymond, the killer. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was so bizarre and chilling and everything. And 
Um, there were things I didn't really care about it, like the golden egg. Oh, I dreamed that I was in a golden egg, <laughs> and there was another egg, and we were in a, if we collided. I'm like, I see what they're doing here. I know what they're talking about because I know how this all ends. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's the scene where he gets pulled over by the cops and he said, is this a thing where if you, if you're claustrophobic, you don't have to wear a seatbelt? Is that a thing? He's like, oh, I've got a medical exemption. And I was immediately thought about these Karens who don't want to wear masks at, you know, Walmart. Who knows? I mean, it's it, the, there's the Europe thing about it. There's the yeah. time period thing about it. Um, you know, so who knows? Uh, yeah. But overall, yes, a, a pretty good film. Man, I love the killer. So, well, not love him as in like, oh, <laughs> but love him and love the performance. Oh, I just got to point out something odd. I just looked up the director, George Sulizer. I know you're saying that wrong, but yeah. It looked like there's two L's, but there's an I, actually. But <laughs> but it, it's kind of like a Funny Games situation where he directed both this one and the remake. Yes, he absolutely did. Oh. So that's, that's unusual. Hmm. You don't see that super often. Funny. Yeah, wow. Sam Raimi, Alfred Hitchcock, they've done that. Um, but yeah, Eric. Yes. What did you think? What did I think? What do you think I thought? He hated it. That's not what you think. No, I think he loved it. Uh, I I just see what you post on social media, and you, I think you said, "Oh, this was brilliant." Just that one thing, or something like that, or this is. I cool. said, "Trey Bien, Trey Bien, sir, Trey Bien." Okay, I didn't see that. Oh. But I did just for my vague recollections of kind of the deliberate nature of the movie. I thought this would be right up your alley, so it's another reason why I grabbed it. This movie was fucking fantastic. Fucking fantastic. Um, now, I didn't know it was fucking fantastic in the first five to six minutes, but it didn't... It was pretty early on that I figured out it was fantastic, and it is fantastic. Um, it's not 100% perfect for me, but it's, it's up there. Uh, it's really, really up there. I have many kind things to say about this movie um my the first thing i had originally wanted to say in my head when i was thinking about this conversation uh in the future um and and sean already kind of asked some of that but the first thing i wanted to say initially was how the fuck do you discover these movies i mean the obvious answer is like you said you just bought whatever criterion was putting out at the time but as I was watching this, and once I started realizing how good it was getting and how much I was liking it, um, I can't. Uh, it happens with some of the other random movies that come up in the the other two podcasts Sean have been Sean and I have been doing recently. But this is one of those movies that never heard of. Um, like the title sounds like a familiar kind of title, but there's multiple movies that also have this title and not just the remake. Um, and so I thought I thought I would reckon like when I heard we're gonna watch the vanishing, I thought when I saw like the movie poster or the cover art that I go oh I've seen this image before or this poster, but then when I actually actually I think I saw the movie poster and then I started watching I was like what the fuck is this? Um, I have no idea. I've never heard of it. Never mentioned it. I've never heard it mentioned in in a in a column or a conversation. 
who are these? I mean, obviously it's a European movie, but um, you know, to my eyes, no one is recognizable uh, as as a face, as an actor, or actress. So this is a completely unheard of movie, and once I realized it was getting good, I just all I could think was, why have I never heard of this movie? Why do I know nothing of it? Um, I was and that simple fact on its own, uh, the diamond in the rough nature of it, um, that really blew me away. Really, really blew me away. Because because there's certain movies, even if they're not mainstream, there's certain movies that people at least have heard of because movie nerds talk about them. Um, I don't know. The first thing I thought of was I don't know, Breathless. Maybe people haven't seen it before. Um, but they've heard of it, and they know it's part of like m- the movie lovers catalog of things you're supposed to watch, whether you ever watch it or not. And this movie should be one of those kind of movies. And maybe it is, and maybe I'm just dull and 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 just missed it my whole life. Um, but this should be one of those movies that people talk about, like that when you're starting to explore um, non-mainstream movies, this should be on that list of required viewing. Yeah, even since 2014. I've seen it come up extremely rarely. Like for whatever reason, this one just hasn't quite hit yet. But yeah, and and it, and it was even slow. Well, from my air quotes research, um, it took a long time for the movie to even get recognized. Period. Um, when it was first produced and made and released, it took a really long time for it to start getting traction with the critics, etc. Oh, interesting. But. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can tell you all about that later. But um, I was pleased because I watched the Criterion special features via the, the streaming service. And um, I was pleased to hear the director say that um, uh, Kubrick had approached him in real life and and told him that he thought this was one of the best movies he had ever seen and that um, Kubrick told him it was the most thrilling movie he had ever seen and that he absolutely adored it and thought it was a perfect movie and he wanted he said Kubrick had all these questions and and asked him about the entire movie like shot for shot frame for frame and just wow. want, like di- like dissected his brain he wanted to know everything behind everything in the movie um, and the and the director told him like uh, I mean, thank you. I'm glad you think it's so thrilling, but he said he like coyly told him like, "Have you ever heard of, heard of or seen this movie called The Shining before?" Um, <laughs> and he said Kubrick's reaction was like, "Oh, The Shining. Oh God, that's that was that was a child's play." He said your movie was was like on a whole other level of depth and everything. Oh, what a compliment! Wow, it must have felt great. <laughs> and then the other interesting connection. Uh, unintentionally, or I mean, roundabout. Um, so I, I forget how you pronounce the the movie in Dutch or Spearly or whatever it is. The um, the the direct translation to English would actually be uh, without a trace. Um, but the director talked about why he specifically chose the English title, "The Vanishing," um, because he thought he considered. The word shining to be like a made-up word like it's not really a real thing um and he so adored the shining he wanted to invent his own word for this movie so he came up with vanishing um because he said it's not well from i mean english is not his first language but from his point of view that's not really a word man like there's vanish 
but that vanishing to him was like a made-up thing. Um, so guess you never heard of uh, vanishing point, right? Right. Uh, but so he 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 titled it vanishing specifically because he he loved the title The Shining. And he wanted to like reflect or like an homage to that title. That's that's interesting. I never would have thought of that connection, but hmm. I mean, we do get a lot of shots of cars driving around early on. I mean, that's kind of a shining. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought about that. I mean, I mean, even when I was just watching the movie in the beginning, and you just see them driving through the countryside and the bicycles on top, and you see the other traffic nearby, and and I was thinking of the opening scenes of The Shining right off the bat. But you don't get the boom, 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 boom. No, 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 no. But you know what you do get? Okay, let me talk about my experience of like of the approximately first six minutes. Um, <laughs> first off, um, so you, I guess it's because of all or most all the movies that we've covered as a trio on this on this podcast um, have largely been horror or something to that effect. I. 110% assumed I was about to watch another classic horror movie. Um, and I, I, I just assumed it. I didn't, I didn't question my own assumption. I just assumed The Vanishing, oh, it's going to be some kind of horror movie. So I already went into it with those kind of lenses on, expecting a horror movie. Mm. And of course, I mean, if you go into it like that, it feels like that in the opening. Um, the other thought I had in the opening and what we're talking about the opening shots of the traffic and everything. And of course, the, I don't know if iconic's the right word, but the music, this movie's from, what, 88? It is so reminiscent of 80s um, European and British, like the stereotypical British um, accompaniment soundtrack music or European, um, to, to the point that, you know, I felt like I was watching like the opening of a classic Doctor Who episode. There's many to choose, but I'm going to go with like the opening of Legopolis and um, Tegan trying to get to the airport and the way it's shot in the, in the eighties background music. I thought this, the first seven minutes could be the cold open of a classic Doctor Who episode. Okay. Uh, you know what? I, I don't feel that that's uh, akin to just European and English um, movies and TV shows. I thought the uh, the music was very dated, um, and it sounded like a movie. Yes, from it's European British to that time that time that it was produced, or especially prior to that. Time. Uh, the night before, I had watched Videodrome, and the music. Yeah, both these movies have very similar music, and both of them feel a little. Yeah, very dated. Okay, but again, it's not just the music by itself. It's a combination of the music and those opening visuals and the way it's shot and the, the style of the vehicles and the, the um, attire. It's it's the whole combo of that. Remind me of British and European productions from, say, circa 1980 to 88. Yeah, which this is. So, I mean, that's... that's... It's fairly exactly, <laughs> but it's the waning days because things were going to change real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, production-wise, this is like the last days of, of this style over there. Oh, but speaking of the opening sequences, there, I just passed that scene where she gets left in the car after their gas runs out. And I was thinking, man, this the, on my first or my rewatch here, I was like, man, this guy's a fucking asshole. I could never imagine yeah. doing that to my partner. 
<laughs> He's a colossal <laughs> asshole. Yeah. I mean, they're in love and all that. They make up really quickly. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just goes, she's afraid of the dark and she's afraid of being alone. Hmm. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to her? Uh, you know, if yeah, and her whole dream about floating in space and being trapped in the egg. Yeah. Uh, it's a nightmare. She says, um, a little bit of setup there. but you know, it, it I thought about this movie, like, what if they changed the order? What if they didn't make it, um, what if they didn't make it nonlinear? What if they started off the film with the point of view of the killer? You know, he's trying these different things, you know, that he explains to No bueno, no bueno, no bueno. That's, that's what I was thinking. I don't, I don't think that would work. And then all of a sudden it flips and it becomes like Columbo with somebody trying to track this guy down. Um, but... And, and they become obsessed with each other. And this guy, uh, Rex, you know, he they're clearly in love. But three years after the incident, he's not in love with her anymore. You know, I mean, he does get mad at Raymond when Raymond reveals to be, you know, either the killer or the person who kidnapped her. Um, but he's more uh, Rex cares more about knowing exactly what happened than yes. anything else. It's, it's like this puzzle that he can't solve, you know, and he has to just fucking yeah, three years. get it solved or he can't live with his life. Yeah, three years, she would have stopped being a person to him at that point. It was just, yeah, it was just an obsession. Yeah. Which I can totally believe. I mean, it's 100% understandable. Like, just not knowing would be so maddening. Like, all those years, like, what happened? And I do wonder if the director may have talked or the writer may have spoken to you know people who had lost family members you know that just disappeared because there's hundreds of people that have just disappeared and they've been killed or buried in the forest we're never going to know what happened to them uh that's that's terrifying actually yeah it really is yeah (laughs) i mean i guess some of them you know maybe they move to new york and become drug addicts and you know OD in the streets, and that's not as terrifying as uh, the idea of them getting picked off by a serial killer. But that's yeah, still terrifying, uh, not knowing they're just gone. And yeah, it's that. yeah, being their family that doesn't know what happened to them. Mm. God, could you imagine? No, I, I have thought about it all the time. Whenever those there was those high profile kidnappings or missing persons uh, in the media, I, I always think about that that aspect. I've always thought about it before. No, but since you uh, brought up the nonlinear aspect, Sean, yeah, I remember when I watched this the first time because I was a giant Tarantino fan, which I, I still am. I don't watch his movies as often as I used to. But I remember thinking, like, oh, like the nonlinear aspect of this movie feels very reminiscent of kind of early Tarantino. Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs. Some of Jackie Brown too. I thought just kind of the way the transition. Well, they all have that nonlinearness, but I, the reason I chose. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, because you go through, you know, what's going on in the movie, and then you take a big step back to go back in the past, and then you get, like, the pre-story. Boom, and then you get caught back up. That, that's why I chose that one specifically. Um, uh, speaking of the writer for a second, um, so you got to step back a little bit before this film was produced, but, um, oh, geez. It was, there was this Dutch author... Uh, I think it was Krob. Is it Tim Krob, maybe? Uh, man, I just had it. Let's just go with Krob for a second. 
Oh, Tim Krupp. And so Tim Krupp, I guess, was this known Dutchman. Uh, he was a writer. Mm, I forget the other thing he was into. But uh, he he took a trip through the United States, the author Krupp, and I guess he passed through Texas, and he was inspired to write this novel, uh, Red Desert Penitentiary. Um, mm. And the director, Sluzier, uh, he read the book. He really loved it. So he actually made a film in Texas based on on the novel Red Desert Penitentiary. So that's how he got to know the author. Um, and so then the author was working on his next book, uh, which would turn in, into um, Spore Loose. And because they had a relationship now, the author of the book was sending him like each chapter as he, as he finished it. And uh, the director said that when, by the time he read the third chapter of the book, he told him, "All right, I just want to buy this movie outright. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna. I want to buy the movie rights. I'm gonna make this." Um, so that's what he did. And um, uh, the author was like, "Do you got a scriptwriter? You know, for the movie version?" And he was like, "Not really." He's like, "Well, I want to do it." And he said, "Okay, fine. You can. You can. You can write the script." And so he said he got the first draft of the script, and he thought, oh, "It's okay, uh, but needs some work." So he said, um, "I'm gonna I'm gonna work with you. We're gonna work together on the script." Um, but by the time they got to the third draft, he said uh, they started arguing a lot uh, about the direction of the script and the movie because um, because Sluzier he wanted to change the order of things for dramatic purposes for the movie, change the order in which narrative events are revealed. And um, original author Krob completely disagreed, and I mean, they were at an impasse. And so um, Sluzier said, "All right, well, I own the rights. You're gone. See you later. I'm just gonna do this by myself." <laughs> um, so that's what happened, and he made it the way he wanted to make it. And and yeah, he, yeah, he said they hate each other for quite a long time, but I guess they eventually made up later. Oh wow, hmm. that's too bad. You didn't see the movie and was like, oh, but there you go. That's the backstory of uh, how the story came about. Is the all is the book even credited in the movie? It must be in the end credits. Yeah, it wasn't in English, so I couldn't. Uh... It has to be. And in the movie credits, they're they're co-writers for the script. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember seeing the name on there. That's why I got the Tim. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Odd that the book is not nonlinear like that. That's yeah, it would make a very different vibe. No, but I did just think it's interesting because so many people credit. I mean, I, I guess Tarantino was the one that kind of spurned on that whole movement for nonlinear. Yeah, he spurned it. I mean, yeah, he definitely made it super popular and made it in vogue again. But he certainly did not invent that. Not, not yeah. at all. All right. So I've got questions um, for y'all. Um, so Raymond, well, what's, what's the girl's name? Skazia? Yeah, I, I didn't quite catch how to pronounce it. Yeah, right. He chloroforms her in his car, which is a really bold move to do in a crowded parking lot because it wasn't just a two. Se- mm. Yeah, I've seen movies with where people get chloroformed and it's like two seconds and they're out. No, it took her a while to to go out, and she was screaming it's too, staring him right in the eyes. Oof. Yeah, and then he took her to his home in Saint Combe. Because later on, when he's having a dinner with his family outside, he's like, okay, everybody scream, eh, eh, you know, and they're screaming and hearing that. And then later on, he asks his neighbor, 
oh, did you hear screaming over by my house the other day? And the guy's like, no. And he's like, okay, good. Does that because he's got the girl at the house and he doesn't, you know, in case she was screaming, he wants his family to scream so it will cover up the fact that there was screaming over there? No, that was he, he, that was his setup period. He was like, okay, where am I going to bring a body if I, you know, kidnap someone and bring him here? To oh, kidnap. okay, okay, all right, okay. Wait, hold on. Because again, I guess he's, he's claustrophobic, so. Wait, I'm confused. I mean, I'm confused why Caleb's uh, explanation just satisfi- satisfied Sean just now. I didn't realize that that part of the movie was nonlinear. Oh, okay, now I understand. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was one of the first times we switched to uh, uh, back in time, so oh, that's fair. They don't really make it super clear <laughs> initially. As I was watching that scene that Sean spoke of, initially I thought, oh, the girl's being kept somewhere here. Um, yeah. But then I realized, oh, no, he. this is, like, you know, out of sequence, non-chronological. But because he was doing that test, I guess, with his neighbor, um, I thought that meant... I thought for certain he was going to be... He, his planning, or his plan, was to keep her captive. Um, so... See, that helped throw me off from mm. the end reveal of everything because I thought that she was going to be like kept in the basement or whatever for X amount of time. Um, and that helped me, that helped my mind go that way because of the scream test. Yeah, I remember on the first few, I kept trying to like, what did he do to her? And there's that whole thing where he's like, oh, you're just going to have to come with me and I'll show you what, he, what I did. I was like, oh, fuck, like, what was it? So yeah, that was a. That's too bad that got spoiled for you, Sean. That's that's a shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, I thought it curious that that his youngest daughter, um, just the way the girl looks, she looks very similar to the one who gets kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was intentional. Like, oh, he's like, I don't know, has some weird thoughts about his daughter, but he's taking it out on this proxy person. Well, the the whole thing was spurned on by her. He's like, oh, if she thinks I'm this hero, well, like, uh, I can only... What, what was his whole ideology again? It was very strange. It was... He said something to the effect, because she's like, oh, Father, you're like the greatest hero or whatever. And and he was like, yes, I am. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but the thing with heroes is that um, something like they can um, they can become excessive or they can go to excess or something to that effect. I thought it was fun. Maybe fun is a bad word, um, but it's interesting to see all the different intended victims that he had, that uh, like the hitchhiker, the hitchhiker, the English lady. Um, and, and the most one of the most interesting scenes, I think, in all was when he approaches that one lady in the city and asks her where the pharmacy mm-hmm. is. And she recognizes him. And, you know, all of a sudden she's on to him and she says, you know, you can take any highway out to a rest stop. There's plenty of foreigners that won't recognize you. And I'm like, oh, my God, she knows he's the killer. I'm like, no, no, she thought he was just trying to pick her up for a little bit of, you know, how's your uncle in the in the back street or something? I like the I, I liked all those sequences and I liked especially the one where the, the husband comes over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got my wife. I like that one. It was a bad plan anyway. Like you're gonna you're gonna ask a, a stranger lady at a rest stop to come over and help you, uh, you know, attach a trailer to your car. No, you're gonna ask a man. Not to be sexist, but 
you know. Yeah, there's so many. And I like how even he acknowledges, like, oh, yeah, you know, some of these, like, I tried all these things and they just weren't coming together. <laughs> and then he has that when he tells him about uh, when he jumped off that roof. But I did find the three-minute review that Siskel and Ebert did back in 88 oh. or 89 uh, for this movie. It's very interesting. Yeah, and, you know, Siskel kind of liked it. Um, but he wasn't completely sold on the movie as a whole, and his main he liked he liked the thrilling parts and the thrilling aspects and how that was set up. But what he did not care for and kind of ruined the movie for him was he said, I can't remember his words the way he described it, um, but he he basically said the killer was, ah, uh, I can't remember how he said it, but he said that the killer was, I'm badly paraphrasing, like he was too. He was too the way he was with everything, all his aspects about his personality and, and his methodicism and everything. And and Siskel didn't just didn't buy that character. He said it was a little bit too much um, with his affectations and whatnot. Um, and he said that kind of took him out of the movie because it just felt too jilted to him, like everything about the killer and his personality and everything. And uh, Ebert completely disagreed. He completely mm-hmm. loved the whole movie and everything, and he completely loved the killer. He completely bought, like, when you get the reveal of his backstory and when he was a kid and all the setup and the saving, the, the drowning girl. Uh, Ebert thought that was all perfect, but Siskel was not sold on the killer and his idiosyncrasies, so he just, <laughs> he, he was like, eh, about the movie. Well, good for Ebert. There you go. Another one on, another score for him. Well, he's not always that great, but yeah. He, he agreed. <laughs> okay, so the the deal with him jumping off a balcony, a two story balcony, when he was a kid, that is because it's sort of like he did this illogical thing that didn't make any sense, right? And this is why he is the way he is. I mean, that's one way of putting it. I mean, you're right. Yeah, he's got this weird thing of being like, "What are my limit? What are my limitations? You know, what am I supposed to do? And can I break that?" Like, his whole mm-hmm. thing with the daughter. Yeah, he's testing free will. They're testing free will, yeah. The thing with the daughter was like, oh, she thought I was this hero. Because I just watched that scene to remember what he said. Oh, he's saying her admiration wasn't worth anything unless he could prove to himself that he wasn't capable of doing anything evil. Which, apparently, he proved that she just shouldn't admire him because, yeah, he's a fucking two-time murderer. So, <laughs> but, but going back to the ledge uh, when he was a young boy, um, he... So, I mean, they talk about this in special features. You know, everyone has that thought at some point when you look at a high ledge or a high overhang or something, or you look mm-hmm. over and you go, hmm, man, what would it be like if I jumped off this ledge or whatever it is, this high dive or whatever? And, and everyone has that thought at some point or many points in their life. But 99% of the time, people have the thought, but they never act on it. And so when he was a young boy and he was having that thought that everyone has, he was thinking, so is it predestiny that I'm not going to jump that people don't jump or is it possible is free will possible? And I could go against like what everybody else does. Everybody else think about it and not act on it. So he was testing if he has, if free will is real in that situation. And and so that's what he did. He, He, yeah, he was trying to do what, most people wouldn't do in that situation 
And that's exactly why Rex drinks the coffee near the end, isn't it? Yeah, it's just very mm. sad. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. I that's that's good though. I, I he even says it in dialogue. <laughs> I never considered that um, comparison, but that's good because it, it helps it helps me resolve the ending more in my mind. I didn't like the scene where he, you know, he's gonna oh drink the coffee. He has a sleeping pill in it, and you'll see what happened to your girlfriend. And then, like, you know, Rex tells him, well, fuck you, you're just going to kill me. And then he goes off and he goes in the rest stop and he, I don't know, hops around or some kind of shit. And then he just walks over and drinks the coffee. I'm like, okay, this, okay, okay, I thought it would be better, but okay, whatever. No, I I, I totally see it because he's, he's gone kind of crazy at this point. I mean, that the poor girlfriend that he's with, I, I can't believe she stayed with him as long as he did. Or maybe just this campaign has made him go really st- crazy with stress i couldn't quite tell i think it's all connected i don't know that the campaign made him crazy or the his crazy made the campaign the, yeah exactly that's that's right i don't know if it's making him his mental state worse but yeah then he he unburies those two coins that uh whatever her name was was it Saska? <laughs> i didn't know how to say it swastika Staxia. <laughs> He unveiled those two coins that she buried, and it was the two eggs that they dreamt of together. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, you know, she's dead, and in her space, I'm going to go meet her now. But it, like, took him. He had to, like, charge himself up by running around that tree a bunch. Yeah, he just looked like a fucking loon. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the poor bastard. But... I didn't think that was bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I liked it. I liked I just it. Th- I just thought the decision was bad. Um, but again, oh, I mean, right. what Sean just said helps, but the way I was trying to justify it before hearing Sean's words was that, yeah, to make it make sense in the movie, or some sense, you have to double down on his obsession, which of course they do in the whole second act. So that's the way I kind of justified it was that because only a nutty person would uh, drink the drink. And so I guess it, it was pretty well established because there's no fucking way well i mean the the poor bastard was like having hallucinations even like when him and that whatever that other girl's name was they went to go to the place that he was going to visit that first time and he pictured that he was back driving in the car with her and then even just typing on that computer and all it says is her name on it oh yeah i didn't know what the hell that was that was weird um well you know it's also uh guilt because right before she disappears she does that silly little cute little oath you know i promise I, Rex, so-and-so, promised to never abandon my girlfriend. And I, I don't know if it was his girlfriend or his wife. I could have sworn at one time girlfriend. he called her his wife. It no. was his girlfriend? Okay. Yeah, he did say wife when he was looking for us, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, no, I, don't, I don't Well, okay, I guess I guess they could. I No, because... Oh, I don't know. I Now I'm of both minds about that. But anyway, go on. Guilt. It's like survivor's guilt. Like, uh, you know, I mean, it's he would he couldn't have known that, you know, just her going into the gas station, she's going to disappear. But you still feel so fucking guilty, especially after he left her in the car in the tunnel. Um, yeah, and he had that first time thinking that she was gone when he went to the car and she wasn't there and he looked all freaked out. Yeah. And then later yeah. that day, just gone for good. I mean, oof. yeah, what a nightmare. <laughs> um. There's more to say, unpack about all this. Um, this is, this is, uh, you, you, if you were going to put this in the video store, you would not put it in the horror 
uh, department. No. Um, it's very, you know, nowadays, sometimes it's very, you know, hard to classify films and in, into different genres. Like, where the hell are you going to put Fargo? Uh, Mr. Brooks. It's another one. Kind of like this. Or we need to talk about Kevin, uh, a movie that is not very violent, but, oh, oh, Tilda Swinton. I love Tilda Swinton. Anyway. Me too. <laughs> Snowpiercer. Man, she's such a psycho biddy. Um, Suspiria. Board queen in Star Trek. Uh, now, because I guess I'm going to be linear in the in the conversation to mimic the movie. Going back to the tunnel. Yeah, I gotta get back to that. <laughs> going back to the tunnel scene. Um, because I also thought, man, this guy is way... Like, it almost took me out of the movie how over-the-top the asshole he was. Because, again, I didn't know what this movie was going to be. I thought it was going to be a horror. I even thought there could be some supernatural things that were going to happen in the movie. Um, based on the beginning. Uh, I, uh, I thought maybe he was going to be the killer or somehow the villain in the movie because of how douchey he was. Um, but uh, the director he had a very good explanation. Well, it made sense to me after he explained his douchiness. Um, because he was saying that these, you know, this two, they're, they're a couple, and they've been in, going through, like, the height of the relationship. Like, the honeymoon phase. I don't mean literally honeymoon, but I mean, like, the mm-hmm. honeymoon phase of their relationship. But they're still kind of getting to know each other, and they're still unsure about their future together, both of them. And he said that bo- at the beginning, he said both characters are filled with anxiety for different and similar reasons about their relationship. And he was explaining that his name Rex, um, that yeah. Rex's thing was in, in turn. It's not, it's not spelled out in the movie, but in his head, he's thinking this girl's great. I like how this is going, but he's thinking, but we're, we're going to lose the spot in 80 and it's going to get to the boring phase and she's just going to leave me like because because that's how relationships often go. Um, so he said in Rex's mind, um, his way of trying to keep the relationship exciting is to put on his like um, like his douchebag mode. And he said that's like his coping mechanism for thinking um, she's going to leave him as soon as she gets bored with him. And so that that's Rex's way to try to keep the relationship interesting by surprising her and whatever. Um, not surprising is not the right word I'm looking for. Um, but, uh, but, but surprising in the sense of you didn't see this coming. And that even if it causes conflict, that maybe that'll keep her in the relationship longer. So, so he said that um, Rex is this character who's filled with anxiety about the relationship, and that's just his way of thinking this girl will stay with me longer if I play like this cat and mouse game with her. So that's what he he, yeah, that's right because there's a scene where they're at an outdoor cafe, and it's 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 a little confusing at first because he sits down. And he asks the waiter, oh, uh, can I see so-and-so? And the waiter's like, oh, I'm so-and-so. And he's like, okay, never mind. And, it, and then we learn that the killer has been sending him these notes, meet me at this time in this place. And he's just ghosting him and just freaking him out. And Rex is like, I know it. I know he's here. I know he's got to be watching me or something to that effect. And the camera does a 
and I'm gonna get to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. There is a connection to what Eric just said. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> the camera does a uh, 360 around the table until it stops behind them, or maybe that's a 180. And we realize, and I didn't even notice it at first, but there's the killer up in the balcony, fucking watching them. And it was so cool. It was almost like it was out of a horror movie, like it was a soft jump scare. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and and, uh, but he does the same thing to her in that conversation and makes her run off. And then he ends up running after her because he realizes he's being his own douchey self. And they hug and they make out in the street. That was a harsh conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. Oh, and then the addition of the killer comes and sits down right at the table next to them and and a minute later. Going back to post-tunnel time, um, <laughs> the director goes on to continue to explain that the incident that happened with Rex being a douche and abandoning her and all that stuff actually leads to the next thing that happens at the petrol station um, with uh, Swastika. Um, which is oh god! No. So you know they just had their little, you know whatever their little fracas with the tunnel, and then the petrol station, and then you know eventually they sort of make up, um, and then so part of what started this whole thing was like he 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 wanted her to drive, um, and she didn't want to like pre tunnel, um, so they make up and 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 so now in her mind. She's trying to think, okay, how can I make things better in our relationship? And in her mind, she's thinking, I will do what would go against my nature, which is I don't really want to drive, but I'm going to go against my nature and I'm going to drive. And maybe this will, you know, help smooth things over. And of course, you know, she announces she's going to drive and now she's getting excited about it. And then, you know, she has to go back to get... Uh, her coke or whatever it is or her coffee or whatever and the director was explaining so now this is her bout with free will um or or predestiny and that her first thought to like i'm gonna drive that's like her first step into free will or going against predestiny and then the director explains normally she would have just gotten her coffee and gone back and even if that guy would have been like oh could you help me with something or whatever the director was like, normally she would not even go along with that or acknowledge that guy. But he was saying that in her head, she's doing this whole free will thing and doing what she would normally wouldn't do. And so he said, that's what spurns her on to now assist this stranger or whatever. Or not assist him. She's getting the keychain or whatever. But he said the fact that she entertains this stranger so much is because she's in like in her free will mode and trying to not be herself as well. That's that's interesting. I wish I got that, but I never would have got it. But it, you know, it made so much sense yeah. to hear. That's what the director was thinking in his mind as he was setting those things up. Yeah, I don't know how well he got that across, but because she she seemed like an outgoing kind of, I don't I don't want to say spunky, but it's <laughs> what comes to mind kind of character. So it didn't seem out of place for her. Absolutely, I agree. That scene near the end in the gas station, um, I think. Uh, um, it, it, what I from what we saw in the beginning of the movie, I totally thought he was going to do like a Ted Bundy slash Buffalo Bill thing. Like, oh, I've got this cast on my arm. Would you help me carry my drinks to the car? 
uh, because witnesses say she was holding two drinks. And then it turns out that he pl- he, he tried to uh, get another woman while well, she ended up in his car. And in a funny scene, he almost accidentally chloroforms himself, which is pretty funny. And he even <laughs>, laughs at himself. And you can actually see the wheels in his head. Oh, the actor is so good. Mm-hmm. You can see the wheels turning in his head. And when that light bulb goes off and he's like, hey, I could kill her. Wow, it's funny how this comes together. I've tried to plan everything, and I've just been over planning. Why don't you just come look at these keychains in my car? And he's mm-hmm. just so simple. Wow, talk about predestiny and all that. Yeah, he even calls it destiny. Masterfully done. Yeah, yeah. Because he was just sitting there like he'd given up basically for the day. He even threw away his. Maybe he gave it up for good because he threw away his uh, cast. Yeah, yeah, I think he did. And he's such a sociopath. He went from, you know, having a friendly conversation to her with her and, you know, treating her like, you know, when you have like really pleasant exchanges with a stranger in the grocery store or wherever, he -hmm. goes from that to, oh, wait, potential murder victim. I can get her in my car. Yeah. Yeah, he he's fucking scary. Like, he's so good, but it's a really scary guy. He's top five murder uh, serial killers. He's not a serial killer. You have to kill more people, I think. But top five he serial killers. Top five serial killers of all time in, my, in a movie. Yeah, if only he'd been in a 90s uh, Columbo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I hate, yeah. I hate Raymond, uh, the character. Uh, I mean, by design, you know, I mean, you know, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I get it. I'll completely, obviously get it, his role in the movie. I, but I hate the guy in the universe of the movie. Um, some of the backstory on the actors and actresses. Um, so Swa- Saskia, um, she was completely an unknown person. Uh, uh, so we've, oh God, what is everybody's name? Um, the director's casting director. Uh, she just happened to go see like a, a, a theater theatrical performance. Um, and, and Saskia, the actress, uh, she was in that in that play. And the casting director thought, oh, this person's like a standout, you know, in, in this performance. And she recommended the director, you know, you know, meet her and, and see what he thought. Um, but she was a complete unknown as far as film or television was concerned. Um, and yeah, and, you know, obviously he cast her. And, and he said one thing she had going for her was that um, she just happened to have the hair, the, exact, the hair color he had in mind for the character. So he said that, that was kind of something that gave her an edge. Um, but anyway, so she was a relative unknown, and this was going to be her big break. And um, for Raymond, that actor, I think he had he had a a very very small, almost a background role in either a movie the director had done ten years prior, or I can't remember if it was his movie or someone else's movie from ten years prior. And the Raymond guy had um, a very small role. He only had like two lines or something in that movie. And that was the only movie he had ever done. Uh, but uh, the director had remembered that in that movie, there was a, some scene where he was smoking a cigarette and he flicked it a certain kind of way. And he always remembered that from that movie. And he just thought, man, there's something about the way that guy flicked that cigarette that just said so much. Like it just wasn't like a regular flick of a cigarette. And so he remembered him just based upon that. And he just thought, hmm, I got to go find that guy from 10 years ago. Because uh, he had no idea what he was doing or where he was in his career. Uh, like I said, he never did another film again. Uh, but so he went to go figure out who this guy was. And then he realized, oh, he's, he's actually become really popular in, in television in that 
10 years. So he was a well-established television actor, but never in film. Um, so he cast him. And, uh, and uh, so apparently this guy, because different people will say different things. I mean, in the, in the interviews, the special features, it's like kind of put a composite together, which was the actor in real life at this point was really full of himself and like really thought of himself as like a big cheese um, because he had had a lot of lead roles like in these television productions and things. Uh, and he considered himself like, you know, a, a pretty established actor. And he considered Swastia or whatever. Um, he was like, man, this girl's like a nobody. And he was concerned that she was going to ruin the whole movie uh, because she was a nobody and had no experience on film or anything. And reportedly from multiple people, he he was a super douche to her in real life um, in in the beginning in early days of the production, and he would speak really horribly to her in real life and really rudely and demeanor and say that she had no talent and he didn't know what she was doing, and he was really hostile. Wait, th- this is the guy who played Raymond or Rex? Raymond, because they had like. A minute and a half of screen time together. I know, but uh, the director wanted the three of them to hang out for like two weeks before the movie. Just he wanted to observe like what their vibe was uh, together. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Because I guess part he explains part of his process is to like observe these people as themselves, and then he will incorporate uh, some of those aspects into the way he directs their characters in the movie. This is like his process, like in other movies, I guess, not just this movie. Anyway, but. When they actually started shooting the movie, um, she said that you know he was uh, he was he was a little eh, like the first day or two, but she said by day three he was he was verbally berating her so much off camera um, that she said she was about to have a breakdown by day three, um, and she told the director like well all like she's like I can't take it he's making me completely crazy um, if he doesn't stop. I'm just going to get on a bus and go home. Like, I'm done with this movie. Um, and then the director talks about his side of the story where she told him what was going on. And he said he had a sit down with him and he told the actor who plays Raymond, the director, he told him something like, look, um, your character in the movie, right? He, he's a horrible, horrible creep, whatever. But the thing is he hides it. And nobody knows. Like, he conceals it to the world. That's your character. And supposedly he had this conversation. And and that was the end of it. Like, he he treated her, like, perfectly fine. And See, as you were talking, Eric, I wondered, is this guy, like, is he using, like, the method where he's like, this is my victim, so I have to, like, treat her <laughs> like shit. And then he realized, oh, wait, that's not quite what my motivation for the character is. So he changed gears. You know, there could be something to that because they do... <laughs> I mean, um, uh, Swaskia, she says, like, Swaskia. that's something she learned in the, like, because this is her first movie, she learned of the power of method, and she said that how the director taught her, you know, like, what you can learn by, like, becoming the character, you know, like, off screen. Mm-hmm. So, there, who knows? There could be something to that theory. And his character is extremely pompous, so it, it, it very well could be. I mean, who knows? <laughs> I just, man, just something about his big, bushy goatee. Just, God, he just seems so douchey. Just, yeah. 
He looks like like Lenin, uh, the Russian guy, not John Lennon, <laughs> or, or something like that. He does, look or like, like Frazier. He's got those giant glasses. Or like an oh. evil Frazier. Yeah, even the way his kid looks up to him, like a kid look up to their dad that much, like oh, like there's something like this guy's ego is so inflated. But you know what? That that is real life uh, serial killers right there. I mean, I know John Wayne Gacy was a great drinking buddy because my dad was a drinking buddy with him. Um, Ted Bundy was a really nice gentleman. He worked at the suicide hotline. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Uh... I'm sure you guys don't know him, but Robert Picton, famous Canadian serial killer, my par- my parents also knew him and was like, yeah, he was just a quiet, normal guy. Cool! Your parents knew a serial killer too? Yeah. <laughs> I know that name, Robert Picton, because I listen to a lot of podcasts about serial killers. I'll have to look that up. But there have been, you know, serial killers that are that are, you know, real family guys. Um, the I think the um, what's the BTK killer? I mean, he he had you know a wife and kids, I believe, and yeah, you just you just never fucking know about people. I could be a serial killer. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, that's that's why I really like the depiction of him as this family man, because his family, you know, I mean, they they start to suspect like are you having an affair? Like, what's this? But they still kind of worship him in some way. At least the the daughter does. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's the scene with his birthday where you know they're enjoying giving him gifts and what he gets from the gifts is inspiration for another murder plot because there's a picture of him in a cast you know when he was a little boy so uh yeah very good so creepy just even just the way they're like throwing those what what are they like tassels or whatever over him and the way he just sits there smiling like he's just he's so creepy (laughs) (laughs) he's not a normal person yeah definitely very good it is strange to think that that just goes by people. Like if I'm, I'm sure if I knew him as a person, I'd just be like, "Oh, he's just a little odd." You know, he's just a little different. Wait, who are we talking about the now? The killer. Yeah, killer uh, Raymond. Raymond. Okay, I, I'm getting lost between real life and fantasy. Um, <laughs> fantasy. Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Okay, okay, because I, I wasn't sure if we we're talking about a real person that we knew, or we we're talking about the character in the movie. No, I don't know. With the exception of Rex, everybody loves Raymond. Oh, I had to get that in there somehow. I'm sorry. Everyone doesn't love Raymond. And I was quite taken by his new squeeze. I was like, man, this guy. Um, What? I I didn't even know where we're going off. Are we talking about Mooseport here? Welcome to Mooseport. What? <laughs> what? Go ahead. Am I having no, a stroke? Smooth <laughs> past it. No. Why are you having a stroke? Because I heard "Welcome to Mooseport," Eric. You're yeah. like, I don't know about his his squeeze, his new squeeze. I'm like, yes, Raymond. I mean, Raymond, guys. Because I was saying, everyone doesn't love Raymond, um, because uh, you know, with Spasvia. At first, I thought, man, why is he even with her? Other than she seems like you know, young and fancy free. Wait, um, wait. Like a, youth, a youthful aspect. What, what movie are you talking Did about? Did you say Saskia? I'm sorry. I'm saying Raymond when I meant to be saying Rex the whole time. Oh, okay. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Eric. Rex is on first. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was like, why is everyone getting so confused? She has a really weird name that I've never heard of before this. It's like Leonenki or something like that. No, uh, but I meant to say Rex. So everyone doesn't love Rex is what I should have started with. 
Um, because when we were talking about Raymond, I, I don't know, my mind flipped to Rex, uh, uh, and I was still going with the name. Um, no, but Rex, I was, I meant, I meant everyone doesn't love Rex. Uh, because when Sean was saying everyone loves Raymond, I was picturing Rex, and I was like, no, fuck that guy, he's a douche too. Um, besides the killer. Um, and then I was trying to think why his character was with Slavia in the in the very beginning. Um, <laughs> different name every time. And like I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the thing I, yeah anyway so um i was thinking oh i guess he's with her because you know she's she has that young aspect about her the, the youthful spont- spontaneity and all that kind of stuff because was, i wasn't very taken by her at, at first uh mm. in the movie um and then when when we meet his his future relationship i thought oh my lord who is this vixen and why is she putting up with this douche that like uh, speck in her eye, I never thought that specks in eyes were attractive. But I was like, God, there's something about that that's just wow. Now we're getting to some real super Kanusha. unique <laughs> Kanusha. Um, yeah, she was stunning. Yeah, and and I thought, man, is, would this not be enough to get over it already? Um, but no, of course it's not because he's so obsessed uh, with getting to the bottom of everything to the point that he's screwing up his current relationship with this goddess. And his mind overall. I mean, he just goes crazy. Just crazy. Yes, absolutely. But I, I did, uh, I, I, I did start warming up to Slavia later for sure. Um, especially when we see her flashbacks back at the petrol station. And I had this new fondness for her, and I was like, aww. And somebody said the special features of that actress who plays her. They said that she really really resembled the director's real life daughter so i don't know what's going on with that stuff oh yeah behind the scenes and he cast that that kid is like similar too yeah that's weird that's weird yes but in the remake of the vanishing which which i watched the trailer and some bits of before we recorded um he flips it and sandra bullock plays the girlfriend at the beginning and she's dark hair brunette black dark hair whatever and then his future girlfriend has like the more blondish curly hair in, in the remake so he flips the, the hair color of the ladies wow sandra Ooh, that's that that puts me on hey i mean from the little bits of the movie of the movie i saw she, she was great because okay. she was pre-speed and like super spunky just like this girl was in this movie um she's okay. had that like useful yeah. bouncy vibe to her yeah before she made the blind side oh <laughs> Let's move away from that one. Can't believe that was up for an Oscar. Jesus wept. It won an Oscar for best actors. Yeah, it won for best actors. Isn't that awful? I watched a great little uh, nine minute YouTube video where somebody put side by side numerous scenes from the original and the remake of The Vanishing. And it was like watching Hitchcock's Psycho along what's his nose is Gus Van Schumacher's. Yeah, or events. Yeah, I thought it was. Sh- oh yeah, that one though. But anyway, like if you if you if you imagine a side by side, shot by shot comparison of the original Psycho and the remake, that's exactly how the vanishing comes off. Even Kiefer Sutherland's, uh, his his outfit or costume at the petrol station is like the same color scheme and everything of the original. And and in the original, well, in both movies. There's this, I guess, iconic truck or lorry or semi that you see entering the tunnel that feels like it has significance. And then you see the same truck again pull up to the petrol station and you feel like there's significance. 
He does the exact same thing with an American semi truck in, in the remake with the tunnel and then later at the station. It, but yeah, but I was entertained by the side by side. Yeah, it's the the two golden eggs with the truck. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Oh, and I liked how the actress who played Slavernia. Um, I like how <laughs> now you're doing this on purpose. She talked about how the whole tunnel scene was like a microcosm for the entire story of the movie. Uh, of course, the egg in the dream. Of course, that. But even the tunnel itself, um, in a way, uh, was a microcosm for their whole relationship and what they were going through and how they were going to end up. And I didn't think that so much until I heard her say it, and I really like that touch. Yeah, my second viewing here, I thought that's so much she went missing. And I was like, oh, I thought there was this whole thing with a gas station. I didn't realize it came this early, and I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> but... Yeah, I was just going to talk about the, the central cast there. I think they're all actually really good. Now, I don't know if that's just like a foreign film thing. You know, sometimes when I don't understand the dialogue they're saying, I feel like that helps performances. But I thought all of them really sold their roles really well. I thought Rex, you know, sold that really mad kind of chaotic energy that he had going on. And that girlfriend, the second girlfriend, I thought she was really good too. Maybe it's just because you're so hot, but <laughs> I don't know. I mostly agree with you, and, and maybe the part I disagree still agrees with you. But again, Raymond, I'm not trying to say what Siskel was saying, but Raymond, the actor, he feels a little bit too on the nose for the for the disconcerting sociopath, weird, creepy dude. Um, he almost comes off as a caricature to me of who he's supposed to be. And everything about him, whether it's his pompous aspect or his sociopath aspect or his creepy killer or douchebaggy guy in a different way than Raymond. I mean, Rex. Um, so, so whereas the other characters feel a bit more natural to me in their roles. But that being said, Raymond's not bad or anything. I don't think it's necessarily a bad choice. Um, Is it uh, the master goatee? Um, <laughs> well, that doesn't help. But also... And this is me, you know, getting too deep into my stereotypes. He's obviously a Frenchman, well, in real life and in the movie. Um, and he doesn't look like a Frenchman. He looks like a German. I know. Yeah. Racist thing that Eric says. And for some reason, that throws me because he's a Frenchman who looks like a German. Um, and I don't know why that bugs me. I don't know why, and I'm not even sure why I mentioned this. When you said he was a Frenchman, I crossed myself. I don't know why. I'm not <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was starting into racial territory, yeah. or well, you we... can do that every time someone mentions. I don't know why. Caleb was a, uh, attacked by a French vampire once. <laughs> I'm not sure why I mentioned it, but. <laughs> and of course, I know I could go to France or Paris, and I'll see all these guys who look like Germans, but they're not. They're Frenchmen. I get it. Frenchmen don't always look the same. It's just when you watch movies, they make Frenchmen look the same, obviously. I mean, I mean that's where I'm getting it from. I did love that scene with Sasuke and him when she's like trying to like converse with him in his language and she's not quite getting it right. There was just something so charming about how she played that scene. It really made me uh, oh, kind of fall for her. Completely agree. Completely agree. I didn't realize there was... Well, obviously there was at least two languages or three, but, there, but there's a fourth. There's at least four languages in the movie. Oh, because of English? <laughs> yeah, English is the one I'm tacking on, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there, it's it's there's um there's Dutch and mm -hmm. Flemish and uh, French, 
And, you know, I had to look up the exact definition of what the Netherlands is and what Dutch is and what Holland is and what Flemish is because those are just a bunch of words that get tossed around and I wasn't 100% sure about all their meanings. Um, so now I know, uh, for the audience, because I know you guys know. So Holland is part of the Netherlands. The Netherlands is all the states put together that make up the Netherlands. But Holland is two specific, um, I don't know if you want to call them states or counties of the Netherlands. So Holland is, it would be like saying New York State, but it's part of the United States. So Holland is a particular area of of the Netherlands. Um, and then Dutch is Dutch. And Flemish is like Southern Dutch, basically. Southern part of the Netherlands, Dutch. And that's been Geography with Eric. <laughs> I was going to say, and good night, everybody. <laughs> The there's a couple there's a couple things in this movie I didn't like. Uh first of all I didn't I didn't um really buy I mean I know that in the script like you know what y'all said predestiny fate all that his suddenly deciding to to drink the poison coffee. Uh I didn't buy it. Um when Rex and Raymond meet um there's a scene where they're like in a park or something and they're talking about different names and shit and i'm like what is the point of this scene this scene has no point um there was also oh i thought of it earlier and i should have written it down there was a scene that i thought was just extraneous and didn't need to be there but i'm sorry i don't remember what it was the park scene i don't remember all the dialogue but and what they were talking about but it's one of those me and caleb were talking about it not too long ago and i can't remember exactly how i phrased it but it's one of those scenes in a movie where the characters step out of scene for a second uh, and kind of collect themselves and then get back to the movie. And I was telling Caleb in a previous conversation how I tend to appreciate those times and moments in movies. And, and I would say I felt the same way uh, about that scene, even though I don't remember how relevant or irrelevant the conversation was. Yeah, they're, it's not relevant at all. And they're just talking about... Um... Like I said, I like those character moments when the characters take a five minute break from the movie and then just have like a conversation about Royales with cheese. Um, and then get, yeah, that was, yeah, that was appropriate. But this is like, I think the moment is too heavy to be having this conversation because he's about to tell you how he disposed of your girlfriend. You know, I don't think you should be hanging out in a park on the monkey bars, you know, talking about how you're not wrong, Sean, but I also, I'm just thinking about this in real time. It's it's like it's like tantric sex. Um, mm. It's it's. <laughs> you guys are so immature. You no, I get. I, I think I get you what you mean. You can't take anything seriously. That's not. Um, um, it's a very serious <laughs> film commentary I'm trying to have right now. <laughs> commentary, and then you guys have to have a bunch of little kids. <laughs> That's Sean. <laughs> oh, boobies, vagina, penis. Let's all snicker. Okay, okay, library <laughs> detective from Seinfeld. Whatever. <laughs> so I don't remember that actor's name. Yeah, Lawrence. you don't get a book from the library. You get a book from the library, you open it up and there's PPs and wee wees driven <laughs> drawn in actually, there. I was gonna make a Seinfeld reference earlier when you were talking, Eric, about how like, this is early in their relationship and they're on the vacation 
what would George Costanza say about that? He'd be like, no, no, big mistake. Don't go on vacation <laughs> in a relationship. Relationship killer. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, that's true. It's uh... it's like tantric sex because um, <laughs> the director. Jeez, I swear, I can't see you guys anywhere. <laughs> oh no, it's not as funny as Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Take us there, Eric. Take us there. There's nothing funny about that. I was being stone cold serious about that's everything. That's why it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was not oh. a satirical conversation. I, I wholeheartedly meant everything I said about Heretic. Yeah, and I just released, just for you, Eric, I just released that, the Exorcist prequels. And when we were ranking our movies, we went off for like 20 minutes on the Heretic again. <laughs> like we just <laughs> well, help ourselves. It doesn't get its just due. Okay, uh. so so the movie's obviously building up. We're, you know, we're, we're careening towards the climax and the reveal that we've all been waiting for. Uh, in the movie and just to stoke the flames a bit more the director's like pulling us aside it's like when you're like is this the is this the um the pornhub video i want to go on no right yet i'm not ready i still have 45 minutes to get ready for work okay let me just keep going a little bit more let me think about major league baseball okay now let me get back to it and so i think he was just trying to prolong it just a bit more just to tease just a bit more before before the ultimate it's climax. called it's called edging eric that's that's what yeah that that's, there you go edging edging yes there you, that's what i was looking for i thought of the other dumb scene that i didn't like um oh, when he goes okay. with the sec the second girlfriend i'm sorry i didn't want to get off of eric's pornub analogy uh oh go ahead by the way if you want to see some really good edging videos out there they're there oh no here we go my god um uh, i suggest going the premium route but go ahead let's start <laughs> premium subscription i mean okay they keep it discreet like on your your billing info keep, keep it going john keep it going what are you saying there <laughs> um so there's a scene where he goes with the second girlfriend laverne or whatever it is la viette <laughs> uh, they go to some hotel or something some rural hotel that he and swastiki they stayed at before and he has an actual fit like on the ground like he goes into a fit and I'm like, okay, dude, there's something physically wrong. Just, you need to seek help. But it wasn't It wasn't a good scene. I did not like the scene at all. And I think it pulled me out. And I'm like, oh, yeah, don't like it. Now. No, I, I think they had to tell that he was genuinely mentally ill at this point. I guess. He'd become I... so deranged. Like I said, he was having, like, visions or um, hallucinations. Like, he, he was pushed to the point that he would drink that thing just to feel connected to her again. I guess so. All right. But talking about that scene when we kind of jump away and they have that kind of human moment where um, they're just talking about names and how funny and weird some European names can be. I'm talking about Mr. Puff. And they both yeah. kind of giggle together. Even though they don't, they're not facing each other, they don't see that human moment together. They still kind of share it. I thought that was a really interesting moment for them before they kind of jump into the real climax. I really like that moment. Concur. Descent. <laughs> so where, where do we go from here? I feel like I maybe derailed you, Sean. Were you saying something else? I'm a little bit drunk at the moment. Yeah. No, I've got I've got nothing to say. I've got nothing else to say. Um, other than I, I really do think this is a horror movie. Or it could be classified as a horror movie. And... Uh, 
I don't know. You know what? If this was on Netflix, I'd make uh, Steve watch it. There I don't go. know if he's gonna like it though, but I'll, I'll make it. I'd make him watch it. I feel like he would. I think he would. You think so? Yeah, I, I think so. Because I love talking about restorations and technical aspects. Oh Jesus Christ! At first, I thought it was gonna be a detriment when I started the movie. Obviously, I, I. I when it when it's a Criterion film on the streaming service, they're streaming like their you know Criterion restored version, mm-hmm. and it looks so perfect. The movie does from the opening all the way through, mm-hmm. and I had mentioned this before. Like sometimes that takes me out of movies when they look too perfect, um, especially when they were made in a period, um, in a different period, or they're supposed to be period pieces. Uh, it kind of throws me sometimes when they look too perfect. And I kind of thought that was going to happen to me with this movie because of, aside from the complete aesthetic of 88 of Europe with the clothing and the cars and everything, um, it looks so perfect. It looks like it was just shot like yesterday or, or maybe five yeah. years ago. And Yeah, apart from the style. Yeah, keep going. I'm so sorry. No, but it's just stunning. And, and I mean, and again, if you're weird like me, that's like both a good thing and a bad thing. But... I, no, it was fine. It didn't. It certainly didn't ruin the movie. But I still marvel. It. It, it just looks so GD perfect. Oh, but I was. I was going to mention Eric because we're talking about the, uh, just kind of the quality of the film. What do you think about the aspect ratio? The aspect ratio. Oh God. Yeah, I don't feel like I see this aspect ratio very often. It, it uh, it's, really it's very. It's your. No, it's a, it's a very European standard. I think it's yeah. one sixty six. Yep. Um. Yeah, I don't think anything of it other than it's the the typical European standard for widescreen movies. No, I like it. Yeah, I was like, oh, like I I just don't see this very often. Oh, I don't dislike it. I but I recognized it right away, and I was like, of course, mm-hmm. see European film makes sense. Yeah, that's just how they roll over there. Yeah, I just, I just figured I I could I should mention it because I wrote down my notes like, oh, I don't I don't see this very often. This is a nice. Nice uh, aspect ratio for the film. Yeah, it's a European thing. And this is a very European movie. I mean, aside from the fact that it obviously takes place in Europe. But I've been saying for years, since I became a a budding movie enthusiast, that I always noticed that European films in general, regardless if they're British or Spanish or German or whatever, um, I always had this idea since like the early 2000s that... You know, they don't have the budgets that American Hollywood movies have, whether they're dramas or not. Uh, They just don't have those budgets. And I always thought that at least the European films that get filtered over to the States that I could rent, um, they tend to make up for their budgets with the writing. And there's so many European movies that fall into this weird genre, which I guess is called genre. Uh, uh, You know, they call them like genre. What? Genre pictures. There's a genre called genre. Okay. Um, and the genre genre movies and genre television shows are those ones that they're not quite sci-fi, they're not quite fantasy, but there's like a twist, like a, a supernatural twist of some kind, but not necessarily magic. Um, and there's there's a litany of European movies like that. Um, uh, What's the movie with the little girl and the glass moving across the table? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, what is that? Little girl in the glass moving across the table. That's that's. It's an older movie. There's this little girl with a shawl, and it's Poltergeist is the only thing in my head. I don't know. No, it's that's not it. It's it's a foreign movie. 
And at the end, this happens. It's obviously like an art film or something. But okay, keep on going. I'm so sorry. I don't know. But there's, just, there's so many of them, whether it's um, Abre Los Ojos, uh, Open Your Eyes, or um, yeah. uh, what's uh, there's this, this cultish, uh, really central movie called Sex and Lucia from Spain. Um, and it and it plays as like a like a rom well not a rom com maybe like a rom drum, uh, but then there's this weird twist that's not really fully explained in the spoiler if you've never seen Sex and Lucia the sex classic, um, they're going through all the relationship well it's kind of like Five Hundred Days of Summer, uh, and then at a point in the story and narrative, she sort of figuratively jumps through a hole and goes back to the beginning of the relationship. But there's no like time travel or time corridor and not she just I don't know the screen goes black and there's like a whooshing sound and then all of a sudden she's back at the beginning and, and she can go through how I don't know but this, it's, how old, wait how old is that, this movie That movie's from like uh, late 90s like 96 95 I I think that Americans were not a, not that I'm like sticking up for America but you know you had things like Groundhog Day um the game David Fincher's The Game. Oh, speaking of David Fincher, I had another point. You know, Groundhog Day is definitely a movie like that that has a supernatural thing to it, but it's a comedy. You're right, but but yeah, right. It's a comedy. It's a very mainstream movie. It's um and the and the gimmick in Groundhog Day is obviously throughout the whole entire movie, or even the game. You could say the gimmick, but a lot of times the European movies, it feels like a straight movie. You know what I mean? And then it's like, oh shit, I guess there's a twist. You know, it's not a supernatural type of movie. It's not a movie where they're, like, theorizing about time travel or anything. It just sort of... There it is. Um, but there's, there's just tons of European uh, dramas and movies that get twisty like that with the mind. But, but again, it's not necessarily magic. And this movie has all those vibes. Even though there's no real magic in this movie, it's just, you know, um, uh, time-shifting. Um but it, it yeah. still has all the vibes because like because because like it feels like a horror but it's not quite a horror. That's like mm-hmm. just how those European movies are. Like they feel like they're this, but they're not really that. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm trying to make a huge compliment though okay. <laughs> for this movie and all those movies. I'm not. This is not a criticism. I I just always noticed it uh, in a lot of European movies, and then a lot of these famous ones get remade by the Americans or by American production, and. Most times they completely fuck up everything, and it, it, it's something to do with the vibe gets lost. The European vibe gets lost usually in the remakes. Yeah. Maybe they feel like they need to define it more. That seems to be a problem. Uh, it's so interesting. I trying to think of other movies. Old Boy. I mean, that's there's nothing supernatural oh. in that, but like like the game, there's there's some sh- complex shit there that is completely unrealistic, but you just go with it. Yeah, yes, you're right, and and um, and I was talking about European, but I noticed for sure, like in the Asian film cinema, they do the same kind of thing, and I think for the same purposes, they don't have the effects budgets and everything, um, and so they try to make up for it with interesting like ideas and thoughts, and that that's sort of in a way that's that's how I classify a movie like um, Parasite. It's not, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not supernatural. It's not like you know, it's like a Jason killer who can't be killed, um, but it feels otherworldly at the same time. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Even though it's grounded in reality. And that's how I feel yeah. about a lot of European movies 
and and many Asian films as well. And Old Boy is another perfect example. Yeah, I gotta mention this one. This movie kept reminding me of it. Have either of you guys ever seen Don't Look Now with Kiefer Sutherland? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, don't, I don't know that one. Oh, Eric, you'd like that one. Yeah, we should cover that. I just recently bought that on Blu-ray, so I'd love to read. Oh, but one I was thinking of specifically um, because of this movie and because Caleb and I were talking about it not too long ago. Um, and it also fits in this European. Well, I think it does. Oh, were you? Were you? Were you were talking to Caleb Slacker. without me? Well, yeah, because because Sean gets gets he gets he gets busy. He, he's so whored out to so many podcasts. See, not oh. all not all of us get that kind of access. No, it's true. Uh, I was invited to talk <laughs> yeah. about something with you guys, and I'm like, I can't. I'm just so fucking tired of recording. And I think that was this movie. Actually, we just put it off. It was really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was this movie, and and we held back just for Sean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, but uh, I, me and Caleb had talked about Insomnia, and I've only seen the Nolan version uh, all the way through. Um, and there's a lot of similar... It's not exactly the same, but there are a lot of similar themes and, and through lines between this movie and the story and Insomnia. And I was telling Caleb, you know, Insomnia is the American... Well, British slash American remake of the uh, I can't remember is, is it Sweden or Norway? It, yeah, it's, I was gonna say Swedish. Might be Norway. I'm not sure, but it's one of those countries. Um, that's the original Insomnia, and and after seeing this movie, I want to see the original Insomnia even more because mm-hmm. I'm curious how they handled characters who were similar to these characters, but in the original Insomnia, the European version. Um, I, I you know, I, I it's also honest. Criterion. Something like that, though. I just want to see Robin Williams playing a serial killer. And that's the other thing. When Sean I, was I, saying I, that Raymond is like top five, I kind of like, I mean, spoilers for Insomnia. I kind of like Robin Williams in that role. And the other Robin Williams role where he's like taking pictures in the supermarket. Is it one hour photo? Oh, one hour photo. Yes. See, I, I rented that movie when it came out. And I didn't care much for the movie at all, but I was just completely like uh, intertwined, or not intertwined, but I was completely taken by just the Robin Williams character in that movie. And that's all that was. That's what had me in the movie was just him yes. and, his, and his idiosyncrasies. Right beside me was that DVD for one hour photo. I've never seen it, but I just reached over and grabbed it because it was right beside me. I, I gotta watch this movie. <laughs> you gotta watch it. And then you gotta go watch the original Insomnia, and then you gotta go watch the remake Insomnia. Yeah, one hour photo, and I agree a hundred percent with everything. From what I remember when I first saw it, when it first came out, it's how I felt. Like as a movie itself, it didn't really hit me hard, but his performance is like, to me, it was like watching an ASMR video or something, you know. And what mm-hmm. he does in that movie that really scared me is exactly what the killer in Red Dragon does. Oh yeah, that movie to too. pick his victims. Oh man. That's that's one of the scariest books that I that I've ever read. Another movie I own and had never seen. <laughs> so many of them. Speaking of um of The Vanishing, so Kubrick was like so enamored by this movie. Uh he was so enamored by The Vanishing and 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 Sanka in the movie, the actress in particular that Sanka. he told the director <laughs> he he told the director like I'm gonna I'm gonna cast her like in my next movie if that's okay with you. Why are y'all laughing? <laughs> well, I think first of all, Sanka is a coffee. 
And I also couldn't help but think about Miss Lily Lysenka from the first episode of Columbo, who blackmails <laughs> oh, Jack Cassidy. Jeez. Oh, Jack Cassidy. This guy's worse with Columbo than I am with Star Wars and Star Trek. Jack Cassidy was so good. Oh, man. Guy was a dreaming Columbo. So Kubrick was so <laughs> taken by this movie and... and and uh, oh, see, yeah, I'm all twisted. Sanka, <laughs> that um, that he told the director, like, I want to, I want to cast her in my next movie, if that's okay with you. Of course, he did. I want her to be the girl in the bathtub. Eyes wide shut. Wasn't that his next film? Yes, Kubrick was going to make this movie in the '90s. Oh, it was called like War Stories or something to that effect. And he had been working on the film, and he was trying to cast Julia Roberts. And Uma Thurman for the lead, but they had both turned him down. So then he was going to put Sanka as, as as in the lead in this movie. But then when when he um, when he learned he wasn't going to get his movie out in time before Schindler's List, then he completely abandoned the project. Oh, um, and, and that's that. That's stupid. And then he made Eyes Wide Shut. Kubrick does as Kubrick does, right? An incomplete film. Uh, another movie, Eric Love's. But we should really finish this podcast because I'm so wasted at this point. Like, I don't know if I can have much more to say. So. Well, you see, this movie, The Vanishing. Can I can I segue it? Because I I have some I have something to say. I have one final thing to say. Go ahead, Sean. The scene at the end when he's in the coffin. At first, it's terror, and I think that probably. 80% of people would say this is the worst death ever to be found in, in a coffin buried alive. And he's terrified at first, and then he laughs. I don't get that. Why did he laugh? And not only that, but right before we see him in the coffin, we see Raymond uh, scooping dirt and pouring it on a coffin, which yes. which actually lessens the surprise and the shock that yep. he's in a coffin. Yeah, I wish we didn't have that shot. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so didn't did not like that. I think he laughs because he's just he's completely gone at that point. I I, I don't agree with that. <laughs> well, okay. I think that's. Part, I don't know the definitive answer because I haven't given that particular question a lot of thought until now um think about what he did before he drank the the drink like he ran around that tree he he was just completely deluded okay you're not wrong about that and you're not wrong about that he lost it that he's he had lost it pre that and was still in his psychosis i guess at the time you're not wrong about any of that but i think there's probably more interpretations though to add to that is what I'm saying. Um, uh, and maybe it's a bit of the author mixing his own feelings and putting them into the character's head, like a combination of the two. Maybe there is some realization of... And maybe it is partially because he's crazy at this point, as you say. Um, he's out of his mind. But, uh, that yeah, like maybe he's thinking about the irony of the whole thing. Maybe he's thinking that wow i actually got exactly what i wanted or exactly what i said i wanted um he wasn't lying uh raymond when he said the only way you're gonna know exactly what happened is if you drink this and and you know there's something about that i think i think there's there could be again he this is all 
under the guise of what you said, you know, he's out of his mind, lost it. But uh, in addition to that, there, there might be some laughter to the the thought that now it's it's going to end finally, the craziness, um, the obsession, that this is going to be some finality to that. Um, there's there's something else. Uh, there's something else. I'm sorry. I'm going to switch over to another character. I'm going to switch over to Raymond. Um, we learned very late in the film that he's claustrophobic, which means this would probably be the worst death for him for uh, at all. And, and also Rex, for Rex is claustrophobic. No, no, it's it's Raymond, and even it's said, Raymond. Shit, did I mix their names up again? Yes, yes, you did. After his thing with his daughter. So Rex is the chemist, is what you're saying. Chemist. Huh. Raymond's the chemist. Rex is the. Raymond is the killer. Yeah, Rex Raymond... is the guy with the girlfriend. Yes, who was also a chemist, or not a chemist, but a, a, a chemistry. Yeah, teacher. Raymond was like, yeah, claustrophobia is one of his like his worst fears. So, um, so that leads me to believe he's he's had this long like drawn out plan to kill someone this way. What does that mean? That he wants to kill somebody literally by claustrophobia because if you're buried alive in a coffin before you you run out of air you are going to panic from claustrophobia whether you suffer from, from claustrophobia or not um and that's part of why i find him so terrifying and fascinating at the same time well he even told rex he was like um I, I when I talked to my daughter about being a hero, I thought was what was the worst thing I could do to someone, and even mentioned to Rex because Rex was like, "Did you rape um, my girlfriend or wife, whatever?" He he kind of didn't me- he didn't say if he raped her or not, but he was like, um, "The thing that I thought of was worse than killing," and clearly that meant by the end of the movie that it was uh, burying someone alive. So, mm. um. It has always been one of the most terrifying things to me as well, uh, the thought of, of that happening. Um, and uh, what was it? Kill Bill. Uh, well, yeah, I'm getting to that. <laughs> but I remember, like, historically that was a thing, I want to say, like, in the 1800s. That happened a lot, unintentionally, mm-hmm. that they thought people were dead, um, and they would unintentionally bury them alive, and that supposedly happened a lot in those days. And to the point where they would design coffins and whatnot to have like a bell device uh, installed mm-hmm. so that if it happened to happen, uh, the person could ring the bell um, to signal that they were still alive down there. Um, and yes, that's the thing. It is one of the most terrifying things in the world to me, uh, to the thought of this. and um, But it is a bit taken away because it has been done in Kill Bill. Um, which of course came later, but I, I, I'm sure there's other examples. I'm, I'm not remembering right now. Um, yeah, buried. Who was in that? Buried. Do you guys remember? Um, Colin. The other Colin. Ryan Reynolds. That's it. And and at one point, I was a massive fan of like the Anne Rice vampire novels, even though I only got two and a half in. But me too, exactly. In the Vampire Lestat, there's that whole ginormous section of the novel where Lestat was buried uh, very deeply into the earth, and <laughs> and 
he eventually, I think he wriggles his, his way out, but it takes like decades well, or something. Well, no, no. It, there's even uh, more literature than that. Edgar Allan Poe with the cask of Amontillado where he ties that guy up or puts him in chains and basically just walls him in. And the guy just... It's a horrible way to die. Yeah, my ultimate point is that, yeah, it's one of the most terrifying things in the world to me, but it's a bit, I'm a bit desensitized to it because I've experienced it in other places. So that kind of hurts it. Whereas if this had been the first time I had seen something like that in film, oh my God, I mean, it would probably be etched in my no, mind. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter? It's still crazy. It's still so If it was creepy. the first time that you saw it depicted. It's still so creepy. No, it's still bad. It's still bad, but it's taken down several notches because I've experienced it in other places. And because I was thinking of Kill Bill, um, I was just like, man, just punch your way out. Even though I know that's not really real. Um, just fucking get out of there. Oh, oh God. Ugh. Like, I used to think drowning could be one of the worst things, but uh, this has got to be worse than drowning. Yeah, it's drowning is pretty quick. Uh, it's painful for a second, and you're done. I thought that was a cue that clearly Quentin Tarantino had taken from this movie a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. I, 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 of course it was in his mind, but it, it was probably one of, like, ten things that was in his mind when he thought about the, the, the live burial. I, I just mean overall for his career. Oh, what? Hold on. Wait, what does that mean? Because you were, you were mentioning with Reservoir Dogs the non-linear aspect of his uh, movies early right. on. And the fact that he brought this up in Kill Bill with the buried alive scene. The way he kind of framed things. Yes, I agree. But I I completely agree. I just think that he also had nine other uh, live burial scenes in his head along with The Vanishing I think when he uh, yeah that that very very well could be yeah oh yeah I completely agree just on this viewing I definitely felt Quentin Tarantino had definitely seen this movie a number of times uh, without a doubt without a fucking doubt uh, yeah um this movie like I said so uh, I want to call him George Saint Pierre made this movie and <laughs> um and it was finished and nobody would pick it up no distributor. Nobody he showed it to had any wow. interest in the movie at all. Um, and he, he, he didn't know what to do with it. And already a year had passed, and nobody had picked it up. Um, and, you know, he tried to get into some festivals. Nothing really happened. But he got it. Oh, at the last... Okay, so they were having, like, the Aussie Film Festival or whatever. And at the last minute, one of their selections, for whatever reason, couldn't be in the film festival. So they needed, like... A last minute edition and one of his friends who worked for the Aussie Film Festival was like hey do you got something that we could just put in because now we have an opening and, and we don't know what to do and he's like well yeah I got this movie right here so they entered it into the, um, the Aussie Film Festival in Sydney and he said there's only, there's only one award that they give out at that festival and it's like basically the People's Choice Award um, based on audience votes and he won and that was the first time that Okay, now people are like, okay, you know, paying a little attention, um, and he finally got distribution. And again, it it was it took a long time for it to really uh, get any steam going. Um, and, you know, I guess the rest is history now. Okay, so I think that's it. You guys, I'm gonna say, are you guys unconscious? Now? That's it. I'm really, I, I'm really drunk. I'm definitely almost unconscious. Yeah, the whole room yeah. is. Uh, it's moving in a very steadily glide upward. So, <laughs> so uh, final thoughts, you guys. Um, 
Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, I need some distance from my initial viewing because that always taints a score. Uh, I know I'm just going ahead and scoring it, regardless of what you guys do. I, I'm torn between a four and a four and a half because I need more distance to, to just pick one, Eric. Today, I think it's four and a half, but in a few years, I might get more realistic with a four. But I love everything about it. The GD masterpiece. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I have, there's like minor quibbles I have, but ugh, it's, not, it's not significant. Um, uh, just an utterly fantastic movie from top to bottom. Just real quick, Eric, what, what are the quibbles? Like if you can summarize them in like a minute. Uh, what did I say earlier? Um, the the creepy killer was a little bit too on the nose in some aspects visually and, and just the way he was. Like, he could have played it a little bit more subtly uh, because he was almost... All, he was dancing on the the border of a caricature of who he was supposed to be um, a crazy creepy psychotic sociopath um, but again minor quibble it's not like it ruined the movie for me and I remember I said earlier he was a Frenchman who looked like a German um, and again that's neither here nor there really and uh, it's the epitome of what I mentioned on mine and Sean's recent podcast. It's the, it's the epitome of a diamond of the rough, in the rough for me. It's why I love to podcast with you guys or who, whomever, because I see these things that I would never have seen in my life ever. Cause I didn't even know it existed. And now it is one of my all time favorite movies uh, in, in, in some category. Uh, it's one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, yeah. Oh wow! I'm really glad I brought it up. It was just kind of like, oh, I want to revisit this movie. That's that's all it was. So, <laughs> really happy you enjoyed it. Uh, more than enjoyed it. Uh, but but Sean, um, I'm gonna give it a four out of five. Um, there were some great scenes. I mean, the pacing was slow, but yet somehow it was there was tension in it, which I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the scenes that I mentioned before. Um, but uh, yeah, good movie. Four out of five. That's all I'm gonna say. And I'll echo Sean in the same abrupt, uh, drunken way. I think yeah, <laughs> it may be a little bit slow paced, but it works really well. I think all the performances just really hit the nail on the head. But I, I really think maybe Rex gets a little undersold from the little bit of reading that I did. A lot of people mention the actor who played Raymond. But I thought Rex really sold his kind of spiral into insanity quite well. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, and, and Saskia, I don't know how to say her name. I, I thought she really had a great performance. Really naturalistic type of performance. And there was that one hitchhiker. Yeah, she's like the perfect babe in the woods. Yep, absolutely. And there was that one hitchhiker that he tried to pick up with that one dude. Where he was like, mm. oh, I'm not going to pick you guys up because you, you guys are scam artists. I thought she was super hot. One of his screw, one of his screw ups that you know he planned it and he couldn't do it. Yeah, but I, I'm I'm super drunk, so that's why I'm mentioning that. But uh, <laughs> but no, I I really enjoyed God, it. That's what it takes you to speak honestly. I'm super happy I rewatched it. I I'd been wanting for years to revisit it, but remembering that scene when he's in the casket, just I didn't want to have to watch that scene again. But it wasn't quite as bad on the second viewing, I'll say. So. Eric, because this was your first viewing, wow, I'm so drunk. <laughs> uh, Eric, uh, was that scene super intense for you? Because I remember it was the first time I watched it. Like I said, it was dulled by seeing similar scenarios 
in other places. Um, hmm. Like I said, if this had been my first experience of watching a movie when someone was buried alive, it, this would probably be like my greatest thriller ever, if that were the case. But I've been a bit desensitized to it. Um, but it, it, I definitely didn't see it coming until it was almost imminent, imminent that uh, hmm. that was going to happen. Um, yeah, and, and this movie, oh, Rotten Tomatoes calls it a mystery and a thriller. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's 98% with the critics, 88 with the audience. The little blurb says, A clinical, maddening descent into the mind of a serial killer and a slowly unraveling hero, culminating with one of the scariest endings of all time. Certainly a good ending. Again, though. I feel like if I showed these to my non-movie-loving friends, my non-cinephile friends, and said, oh, you got to watch this movie. And I think it would be even worse if I just read that blurb out before they watched the movie. Because I feel like they would sit through it, watch the entire thing, and they would have that similar similar reaction, new new viewers of The Shining get, which go, uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess it was kind of tense here and there. But I don't know about scariest ending ever. I don't know. I just I just feel like that'd be the the non we type reaction to this movie in twenty twenty one. No, this is fucking fantastic. All these movies, everything we've watched on this, everything we've watched on Best Picture and Thousand and One. Um, you guys are fantastic. Really? Everything on Best Picture? Mm. No, no, but I mean... Yeah, not everything. No. Okay, oh, I wasn't being absolutely. literal. Okay, Pedantor. Avatar. Um, oh, jeez, don't get Avatar's me. Avatar's okay. Maybe hey, if you guys are trying to get me to end this, don't start bringing up these contentious subjects. Um, but uh, no, I just I just love all of this stuff because I get exposed to so much more. And I already go off looking for, you know... Uh, non-mainstream non-mainstream movies as it is but then this just pushes me even more but in a good way um to just expand my horizons even more this this movie is gd fantastic i just unbelievable to me that i never heard or seen it before man this and and ollie fear eats the soul i'm telling you man what else does a person need in life Anyway, guys, see us on the next one when we cover whatever the fuck else we're going to cover. So, peace. Shining fan, but I think that's Stephen King's best book, so that's why. I don't think I've ever heard you say that before.
Have either of you guys read The Shining? Hell no. Yes, many years ago. I think it's the best depiction of an alcoholic I've ever seen. Like, I mean, obviously, from everyone who's listened to this podcast at this point knows that I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> that book hits the nail on the head in a way that I've never experienced before. Wow. If you want to hear... Uh... I've thought that about the movie. I And and my former co-hosts at the uh, Classic Horror Cast didn't agree with me. I'm like, guys, he's an alcoholic. He had it in him already, and the hotel tricked him into drinking. And he became an alcoholic, and that was his ghost, and that's why he did what he did. That's um, interesting. If you want to hear something out of the volume things Eric Eric would say, um, I've only read two Stephen King novels. And, oh, wow. Uh, and those novels are The Green Mile and Dreamcatcher. Oof. And that's it. And that's it. I don't, I don't think too many people can say yeah, that. Green, Green Mile's a great book. Dreamcatcher is okay. I like that book, but yeah. I just think it's it's not what people expect to hear when uh, no, when you go through what you've read of, of, of the Stephen King. Uh, oh, but for you, Eric, I was I was so pumped for Doctor Strange because of Tilda Swinton. I was like, oh, she's going to bring such a great kind of energy to this uh, MCU, and I thought she was completely wasted. I was so heartbroken to see her role. Kinda, in kinda. I'm sure Sean wants to chime in, chime in because he's such the MCU fan. <laughs> <laughs> you and Satchel at work are constantly ribbing me about not liking superhero no, because, movies. Because I tell you, the whole MC, it's not a homogenized franchise. It's a box of chocolates. I know. And there's certain ones I know. that I know will speak to you and certain other ones that you'll just want to throw mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. for sure. But my co-host Isaac mm-hmm. um, swore off of watching the MCU movies for at least 10 years because of his frustrations with it. So. Oh, I, I know. I think he's, yeah, he's mentioned it on the podcast. Isaac is not the best barometer for these <laughs> types of like franchisal questions. And hey, I totally get his frustrations. <laughs> I get it, but that doesn't mean take a ten-year hiatus. Every year when the the best picture nominees come out, I buy them all on Blu-ray. Um, good luck with this last year. I managed to. There's somebody selling Mank. Um, Blu-ray, which of course is a Netflix movie. So, um, but uh, I still haven't watched Black Panther, and I've owned it on Blu-ray for like three years. Like, I, there's nothing. I, I am not. Nothing. I don't know. You know what else I haven't watched? Rogue One. It's not great. Oh, that's a fan fucking fantastic Star Wars movie. No, no, no. Awful. No, it's not awful. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Mediocre. Get Mediocre the- to its core. I refuse to pay $30 a month and get Disney Plus, but I listen to a podcast. Not that much. No. I don't know. I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, and, and it's, I, I had no desire to see the Mandalorian until today when these podcasters that I really respect their opinions started talking about it. And they were talking about how, you know, they, one of them, like the only two Star Wars movies he likes are A New Hope and Empire. And he, you know, then he says, I saw Mandalorian, and it's so good. I mean, he's. they were like, you can tell this was made by somebody of our generation who grew up, like, playing with the toys and wondering what the, you know, it's not bombastic like uh, like um, like George Lucas's uh, movies and, and spinoffs. True. So. Very true. But it just, 
I know I want to see it really bad, but yeah, if you watch any of the new ones, Rogue One and Mandalorian are the ones that I would steer you towards first um, if you were even trying to do that. And like when I was trying to sell Isaac and Caleb on uh, Mandalorian, I was telling them how, especially in season two, I think, um, different episodes um, are almost homages to different genres of cinema and classic cinema. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, yeah, and it's like there's a there's a Seven Samurai uh, episode. Oh, definitely, apparently, definitely, and there's a different man with no name type episode, um, mm-hmm. different than the Seven Samurai. Um, yeah, there's a Spaghetti Western episode. There's you know a Samurai episode. Yeah, classic monster movie. There's like a thriller, yeah, monster movie suspense episode. A lot of different, a lot of different stuff going on there. It's fucking fantastic. Yeah, I thought the first season was super mediocre, but the second season was definitely an improvement. I like the second season. I wouldn't say super mediocre, but it was more, okay, this is great. <laughs> this is great. It, no, no, no. I mean, it's not like <laughs> a BJ and a reach around, but it, it's nice. It's nice. <laughs> nice, heavy petting. Nice, heavy petting. No, there wasn't even any tongue. It was just a brief <laughs> But then when you get to season two, it just becomes a splooge festival. Um mm. Oh, that's the reach wow. around. That's these, the, these are technical <laughs> terms. Um, I learned this in film school. I learned this terminology in film school. Um, he learned it from Roger Ebert. Yes, yes, yes. I studied the masters, um, John Holmes, etc. Um, Master debaters. Yep. Uh, now, because I guess I'm going to be linear in the in the conversation to mimic the movie. 